You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. a little bit of everybody's blood we're gonna find out who's the thing watching norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole every little piece was an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life you see when a man bleeds it's just tissue no blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked it'll try and survive crawl away from a hot needle say welcome to the Binge Movie Aftertaste, The Thing Retrospective Series. You gotta be fucking kidding. Join Garrett. He must be over eight feet long. Matt. Poor baby, you're starting to lose it, aren't you? And the returning Mick Duffy. Yeah, fuck you too! As they look at all three films based on the 1938 novella, Who Goes There? Written by John W. Campbell, Jr. No arterial structure indicated. 1951's The Thing from Another World. May I suggest that we spread out and try to determine the size and shape. The John Carpenter 1982 remake, The Thing. I'm gonna hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. And whatever the hell they call that 2001 film, well, The Thing. His face is encased in some type of amniotic sac. Is The Thing from Another World the oldest movie the aftertaste has ever covered? Holy cats. Is Carpenter's film as classic as its reputation? Maybe we'll just warm things up a little around here. Is Goudreau really an alien? Now in bitter new father mode. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. We test the blood to all these questions and many more, all coming up courtesy of Binge Media. Let's do it. John Carpenter's The Thing, released June 25th, 1982. Budget was $15 million. Box office, $19.6 million, at least in North America. And this was directed by making his first appearance on An Aftertaste with Matt and myself, Mr. John Carpenter. All right, guys. So the thing from another world really shocked me with how much I liked it, actually. And then 31 years later, John Carpenter comes out with this remake. And it's supposed to pretty much launch his commercial career. 
and it flops. Does not do very well. Critics can't stand it. It landed with a thud. Nobody went and saw it. Lo and behold, it starts making its rounds on cable TV and the home video market, and now it's like a cult hit. Mick, do you remember the release of The Thing? Not really. I can actually tell you why. I would have been on holiday when it got released. It's it's a weird thing. Uh, certainly at that point in the 80s, it used to take ages for uh, American films to travel across the Atlantic and get released mm-hmm. here. I, I thought that was odd that I had no memory of seeing TV trailers for it or of you know, being aware of it playing. And I had seen a magazine article about it. I remember that much. But um, no, this got released in August in 1982. Mm-hmm. And just to put this in context, uh, the biggest film of that year, E.T., didn't get released in the U.K. until, I think, December. So they used to hold things back for six yeah. months. So this was really only a couple of weeks, which is super fast for that time of year. And I'm assuming it probably also fell away very quickly in the U.K. I've checked them in the dates. I knew I was on holiday with my parents when it was playing in the U.K., so I'd have been nowhere near a cinema. I'd have not have been aware of it, you know, um, of it playing, and I'd, I'd not have seen any TV coverage. By the time we came back, it certainly wasn't playing anymore. Certainly wasn't. When this had come out, I was five. So I was all about E.T., which had come out that exact summer. And that was my movie. You know, came out a couple of weeks before. Did Gangbusters. Carpenter, to this day, attributes a lot of the thing's failure to E.T., and it's hard to argue that because it's another alien movie that had come out. You know, nobody wanted to see a nihilistic movie <laughs> with all these effects when you have the cute and cuddly E.T. with Reese's Pieces at his fingertips. It just wasn't happening. Matt, when did you see John Carpenter's The Thing for the first time? I would say I was a early teenager, mm-hmm. probably 12, 13 so, unlike you guys, I think I'll put this movie, didn't remember the release date. So I'll put this everything I'm about to say by saying this. Since I was not on the Halloween shows, I'm glad we're doing John Carpenter finally, because I'm, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> and this is sort of, if, if you were to ask me what's my favorite John Carpenter movie, I would always tell you it's Escape from New York, no question. That's in my top 20, period. And speaking of irony, looking at this movie in particular, I get why Carpenter would blame E.T., but... I think there's a lot of other reasons why this movie did not do as well as it did, because let's remember that this came out at a time where film criticism, in particular the well-known national ones, their opinions carried a lot of clout. And almost every, I would say, notable critic at the time, from Paul and Kale to Roger Ebert, none of them gave this movie a strong recommendation at all. In fact, Roger Ebert's review, he flat out said it's designed for teenagers just to dare each other to keep watching, or something to that effect. I think that kind of misconstrues what the movie's actually about. And when you put statements like that out there back in 1982, everyone's going to take that to heart and not really go out of their way to see that unless you are one of those aforementioned teenagers who just wants to see a, a gross fest. In combination with the fact that, no disrespect to Kurt Russell, it's not like you have a Harrison Ford or a Michael Douglas, you know, these big names from the 80s, a Schwarzenegger at the helm of this particular movie. So without that and without an IP or a really strong hook to a common audience, I don't think a lot of people would have gone out of their way to go see this unless you had one of those big names. Yeah. You mentioned the reviews. There was one review that said Carpenter's not made to direct science fiction horror. He was made to direct car crashes. 
So, I mean, this thing just took a drubbing from critics. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people do take that to heart. Back in those days, you open up a newspaper, you see a review, and it says stuff like this. You're not going to go to it. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Halloween. There was like a little thing in Halloween where the kids are watching this movie. So you would think at that point that Carpenter was chosen from the beginning to direct this. That was not the case. little known guy by the name of Toby Hooper was attached to this. Mick, you and I know, and Matt, the three of us know him very well. We did Texas Chainsaw a few years ago. His mm-hmm. pitch, he was not a fan of the original book. He called it boring. So his pitch was pretty much a modern-day Moby Dick set not in the ocean, but at the bottom of the world in Antarctica. We were going to have an Ahab character called the Captain. We were going to have a whole bunch of different shit go on. And producers say that they avoided disaster because it would have been one of the worst movies ever made. They pretty much fired Hooper off the project, (laughs) him and Kim Hinkle both. And then that's when Carpenter took over. Last week I mentioned that this movie and Firestarter have something in common. And, And the thing about that is when Carpenter did this movie, he had signed a pretty big universal contract. And he was slated right after this movie to do an adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter. This movie comes out, does exactly what the three of us have talked about, and then Carpenter's contract was just dismantled right after that. And it pretty much hurt his career. His career would have been so much different had this been a hit. He's even admitted as such. He, he was talking about how, you know, while I love the work that I did afterwards, your Starmans, your Big Trouble in Little Chinas, I don't think those would have come out in the way that they did if the thing did have that success, but the underlying irony in the fact that he got booted off a Firestarter is that right as soon as that happened, there was another Stephen King adaptation that they said, hey, hop on board to direct this for us. I think that was put out by Columbia. So it's not like Stephen King literally assimilated John Carpenter. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh, you're not going to do this adaptation, but I got like eight others you could pick from. (laughs) True, but Carpenter has said, we're going to cover that, Matt, in a number of years, when your child's of drinking age, I think. Uh, He does say... Please. (laughs) But too fucking (laughs) days. He does say that that was the only job he ever took for a paycheck. Let's talk about the screenwriter of this a little bit. A guy by the name of Bill Lancaster. What an interesting career this guy had. Yeah. Son of Bert. He wrote... Yeah, One of my favorite movies of all time. Matt, you mentioned Escape from New York is in your top 20. Bad News Bears, the original, is in my top 10. Favorite movies of all time. Love that movie to death. This was the writer of that. It's so good. He wrote that movie. He wrote its a sequel. And he wrote this. That is the extent of his screenwriting resume. Mick, pretty interesting career, huh? Yeah, I was. I think it maybe we can complain a lot about nepotism. Mm-hmm. And people haven't gotten where they are simply because of who their parent was. You know, if they have a a father who is a significant or important figure in the film industry. Yeah, just looking at Bill Lancaster's filmography, and again, you know, with with, with screenwriters, especially if you're a working screenwriter, or never seen all of the work they did, because I'm sure there's stuff that got developed that was never made, or maybe things that he did a pass on but didn't get credited on. But certainly those films we do have. Uh, you know, Bad News Bears, particularly, uh, and this, and, you know, Bad News Bears in Japan, that's the sequel, isn't it? Yeah, that's the title. I've, I've seen that one the mm-hmm. once, but these are all extremely well-written films, and uh, you basically, I've been thinking of Bill Lancaster as the anti-Max Landis. Oh, good one. <laughs> that's a very <laughs> apt comparison. You know, where it's like, I don't think any... I don't think anyone can look at Bill Lancaster's work, certainly what got produced, and say, well, he only got there because his dad's a big shot. I mean, you know, the writing is very, very good. You know, Bad News Bears is fantastic. Um, again, one of my favorite films. And he's very, very good at writing ensembles. 
you know, both of those, you know, you can say the thing and Bad News Bears don't seem to have a lot in common, but they both juggle an awful lot of characters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's an attention to detail there. It's it's weird. They're both, I guess, super talky, but they don't feel like they're talking. Honestly, when I looked at Bad News Bears and looked at this, I did not see one comparison. But you just made the perfect one where there are a lot of characters here and everyone has to have their own personality. And he does do that with this. That's a, that's a great point. Never did notice that. So... Probably part of the problem, at least according to Carpenter, was the poster that Drew Struzan came up with. Now, Drew Struzan, one of the most well-known, one of the most well-renowned poster makers of his time. If you've seen any publicity photos of this movie, you have also inevitably seen this poster, which is pretty much some entity, some thing with the light coming from it. And when Carpenter saw this, he was pretty upset. And he said, you might as well put a fucking knife in his hand. He did not want this to look like a slasher film. And lo and behold, that poster did make it look like exactly that. So my history with this movie, to me, it was the ultimate guy movie. I saw it as a double feature. This with, this is so uh, ironic. I saw this with Firestarter. It was on like late, late at night, fell in love with it. And to me, like when I was a teenager, if I had some guys over, we were done watching like a wrestling event of that day or something. It was a full-blown conclusion that this would go into the VCR, and I would watch this a lot. This was one of my favorites growing up. Mick, what's your history with the thing? Did you When, when did you eventually watch it, and what were your feelings on it? Right, because I was aware of it, and um, certainly when I was old enough to go and rent videos myself, it was something I didn't rent, because if, if you're familiar with the sort of history of, um, of home video in the United Kingdom, you'll be aware of the video nasties, Moral Panic of 83, Mm-hmm. And in the aftermath of that, lots of films, even big studio films, when they finally were released on um, on sell through video or you know when they were available for rental, a lot of things got cut. And the thing was one of those titles that had been sort of very notoriously cut. Mm-hmm. So the only the only VHS version of it available when I was kind of old enough to rent it really was a version that had been heavily cut. And I, I did. I just avoided that like the plague. I, you know, I just read there's literally no point in watching this movie if you're watching in a you know, truncated version. So I didn't see it until I was about 18, until it was on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the irony, you know, it's a um, distributors are too timid about putting this out on video uh, in case they, you know, ran into, you know, in case they ran into sort of the arbiters of moral decency and whatnot. But um, it screened on TV uncut. Yeah, and that's when I saw it. I'd have seen it um, a late night TV showing. Mm. When it's by eighteen. When you were eighteen, did you like it? When you were eighteen, or? Yeah, I I did, I did, but it's a thing. It's a um, here's the the problem is, of course, it's it's not a film that stands up well if it's interrupted with um, commercials. Yeah. Yeah, and and it's such masterful use of you know that very very wide screen format, that anamorphic format, mm-hmm. that watching it pan scanned on four three television didn't do it any favors. So. I say that I first saw it on TV late night, and I saw it again a couple of months later in another rerun of it, but I didn't really see it properly till I saw it um, projected. Mm. I saw a, um, I saw it at university at a sort of film society screening um, uh, uh, on a night where I immediately finished watching that and went into another cinema to catch a triple bill of the first Alien movies. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell I was single? <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's all clear that this is the point of my life when, you know, uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right about the Anamorphic 239. I call it Carpenter Vision because I don't think there's ever been a director who has used this format as well as Carpenter with the, you know, the way the light reflects and the use of, you know, the blues that come with shooting on that. I can't imagine watching this pan scan yeah. on like AMC at 10 o'clock at night. I would just, this is very snobby for us to say, but like, I would not watch this on syndication whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Matt, you said you saw it as a teenager. Had you seen it again since before this recording or no? Yeah, I've seen it quite a few okay. times. A lot of it, though, has been in compilation stuff. I've seen clips of this movie numerous times mm. because almost any documentary you watch about horror, especially 80s horror yeah. or alien movies, they will show at least four different scenes from this yeah. movie. So there are certain pieces embedded in my brain, but as far as a collective experience, I watch this movie with a good amount of regularity. Yeah, same here. There was a, I, I keep I mentioned this on probably every single horror franchise we do, but there was a movie called Terror in the Isles that showed this pretty prominently, a couple of the big scenes, and I'd seen that before I'd even watched this particular movie, and it made me so excited. Like, I wanted to watch it right away. All right, boys, let's jump right in here. So we're seeing a spaceship fly by, kind of like Predator. That's what I kind of thought of. And then, boom, John Carpenter's a thing, plasters across the screen. Love this. You know, I mentioned last week that when we did the original, the thing from Another World, that I didn't know that that's where this originated from. I thought maybe the way that thing is on screen was actually originated from Carpenter's version, but no, he took it directly from that. It sets us up pretty well. Yeah. There's, there's a weird thing, though, that I noticed this time around. We don't have the Universal logo at the start. No, good point. We don't have the Universal Studios ident, and it's weird, because part of me was thinking, did they not want it on the front of this? Then I remember, like, Videodrome is the same year, and Videodrome has a Universal ident at the start of it. Interesting. I figured it must... It, did somebody feel that this would clash badly if you went from the Universal logo, which is the Earth from space, to a shot of the Earth from space? <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? It's a stylized, unrealistic shot of the Earth from space because there's no clouds, and obviously we don't have a giant Universal sign orbiting us, like past the Van Allen belts. But it's one of the things where if they made this now, you just know they'd do something nauseating, like they'd have the Universal logo and then they'd push into a fakey CTI shot above Antarctica. Oh, my God. I'm not convinced that we're not going to see that because we're going to probably have another version of this coming up. We'll talk about that next week. But that's a great point, Mick, because there are people who have to make that decision. Do we go from a shot of the Earth into a shot of a spaceship around Earth? You know, <laughs> and they decided not to go that route. Very interesting point. If you remember the, uh, the Waterworld. Yeah. Yes. The Waterworld starts the universe. Yeah. And um, as someone who has a child... Um, a couple of the directive video Land Before Times sequels do this. Do they? Well, they'll start with the Universal. Yes, they'll start with the Universal symbol, but then the continents move back in to reform Pangea. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is actually a really cool thing wasted on those garbage children <laughs> films, you know. Um, but yeah, we'll see something like that when they do this again. They'll, they'll, they'll not leave it alone. They'll do something overly showy. You just broke the hearts of people who loved Lambie for Time growing up, sir. I love the original. Okay. The, the sequels are garbage. Right. So. Yeah, the original is fucking great. Yeah. So then we see Antarctica, winter 1982. You would think. See, Carpenter was doing his scores back then, and you know it d- does sound very Carpenter-esque, this score, and you're thinking, wow, Carpenter did this score as well. You would think that this was him. No, this was the work of Ennio Morricone, who, by the way, Tarantino would lift parts of this score for The Hateful Eight a number of years later. Boys, what do you th- guys think of this score? 
I like the simplicity of it. Carpenter always talks about, if you ever listen to interviews, he's a big music guy, both in terms of compositions and just records. Uh, he always talks about how you don't want your scenes to rely too much on music to convey what you're supposed to be feeling. In many ways, he's, the, he's like the opposite of Christopher Nolan, where I think Nolan overemphasizes the scores in his movies because he's so often devoid of emotion. I think Carpenter, his minimalistic approach... Especially in a movie like this. All you need is those, like, dun-dun yeah. chords. And it's ironic because very isolated sounds in a movie about isolation. Yeah, no, it's it's weird. I mean, we'll get into this, but my memory of this film, because I hadn't watched it for about 15 years, was that the, the score is mostly synth, and it's not so much of it's orchestral. Yeah. i tell you one thing that is interesting. You know, he said, um, Carpenter said he wanted somebody European to score this, who went for Morricone. Mm-hmm. And Hawks' film is scored by Dimitri Tumkin, who is Ukrainian. Is there something in this idea that you can't let an American score this? It has to be somebody who's foreign? Sounds like it, doesn't it? This opening of this movie, this is the way I opened this podcast. There's no way I couldn't do that. It's such a foreboding, such a real nice setup for what we're about to see. Yeah, I love the score as well. And Mick, that's a great point. You know, I did think that it it was mostly synth given the era and everything, but no, this is almost all orchestral, you know, a lot of horns. We're seeing dogs being scampered, helicopters landing, and these guys shooting dogs from a helicopter all amongst this white as chalk snow. This is setting quite the mood, isn't it, guys? We're not going to get to know these guys for a little bit, but it's setting us up pretty well. Yeah, it's also really nice uh, location shooting. Yes, great point. Carpenter, he didn't love going to Antarctica, but the fact that they they were able to go, uh, the only thing he really hated about it was he didn't get any beer. There was no beer at this place. Well, they they went to British Columbia. There's a big glacier up there. Yes. That's the other thing about this. My worry is that decades from, well, maybe a decade from now when I show this to my son, I'll be like, yeah, they shot that in a glacier. Let me explain glaciers to you. (laughs) What aids it is the fact that someone trying to openly shoot a dog is highly unusual, and your only excuse would be, we are in the middle of nowhere, we need the dog for food. That's really the only even remote justification you would have for someone shooting at a dog. So doing something that peculiar adds to the the paranoia of the movie. Yeah. By the way, going back to the score, this was nominated for worst score by the Razzies. Come on, guys. <laughs> well, let's remember that we just talked about the Razzies last That's week. That's true. On another show. Yeah. And how sometimes they don't always think the best in the moment. True. So we see that we're now at the United States Science Institute. And this is when we meet McReady, played by a very beardy Kurt Russell, as he's playing video chess. And when he loses, he just pours his J&B scotch into the machine, calls it a cheating bitch. By the way, the voice of this game is done by Carpenter's wife at the time, Adrian Barbeau. Is this a subliminal message he's trying to tell us? Because they would divorce pretty soon uh, after this. I think it's some awesome foreshadowing. Absolutely, yeah. It's telling us everything we need to know about McCready. Yes. And, um, you know, in a, he's kind of a, well, the most charitable thing we can say is a misanthrope. Mm-hmm. And he has been outmatched by a non-human foe. Oh, wow. I didn't read that much into it. Because he, does, he doesn't have the strategic smarts to beat the chess master computer, yes. Uh-huh. And when it does actually defeat him, he just destroys the entire arena. <laughs> Great point. So, you know, in a kind of, yeah, fuck you, I actually won. So, yeah, yeah 
Foreshadowing. <laughs> that is, that is a, and remember, that is a call. whiskey is also highly flammable. Yes. It is, yeah, yes. good point. I also want to add, this also tells you, if you notice, McCreary is the only one who really doesn't have a bunkmate or someone that he shares a room with. So you are setting up that he likes to be by himself and would rather interact with non-human beings than actual people. Oh, me and McCready have so much in common. Yeah. <laughs> the, and I will say for the record, one of the greatest beards in movie history. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. It took him over a year <laughs> to, to grow this. Now, Carpenter and Russell, they are famously good friends. And you'd think that with Carpenter at the helm that this was his idea to cast Russell right away as they had worked together on that Elvis TV movie from a few years before. But that wasn't the case. And Escape from New York. What's that? And Escape from New York. And Escape York from New York, correct. This. Nick Nolte was the initial choice. He ended up turning it down flat. Then the other was Jeff Bridges, who had actually had this exact look five years before on the Dino De Laurentiis King Kong film. Oh, God. But he turned this down as well. And Lancaster actually wrote this with Harrison Ford in mind, believe it or not. But after going through the ringer with those guys, Carpenter ended up with going with his buddy Russell. Matt, you and I discussed Kurt Russell on our Fast and Furious retrospective. I always say that he's a very welcome presence, even in those not-so-great movies that we covered. Here's where a lot of that goodwill comes from. I love him in this. In a movie that is very calculated, very cold, he is the one that I can safely say that I trust. How do you guys like Kurt Russell in this role of McReady? Yeah, he's interesting. It's weird because you're talking about this film coming out in 1982, yes? Uh Uh-huh. So we're past that phase in the 70s where people like Elliot Gould could be movie stars, but we haven't quite figured out what the 80s version of the film star is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Good point. I mean, Harrison Ford has done Empire Strikes Back and Raiders, and kind of Harrison Ford is clearly going to be a big figure in that decade cinema. But we still don't quite have an idea of what the 80s leading man is or what that will mutate into, yes. Mm. You know, we're pre-Rambo, we're pre-Schwarzenegger being big. Is it weird? Is Kurt Russell was McCready a kind of weird transitional fossil between kind of slightly odd 70s character types being the leads? You know, like your your Donald Sutherland's, your Elliot Gould? You see the, the missing link between that and us going, you know, our lead is, you know, um, Stallone or somebody resolutely masculine with new complicated edges. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's really, he's a much more interesting actor than we generally acknowledge. I agree. He's very underrated. I love Kurt Russell in pretty much everything. I especially love him when he works with Carpenter. Because if you look at the... I've seen the Elvis movie once in a blue moon. But if you watch Escape from New York, this, and Big Trouble in Little China, there are three very different performances. Escape from New York is him doing a Clint Eastwood impression. And Big Trouble in Little China is him doing John Wayne. A more bumbling John Wayne at that. This is him... I would say of the three, this is the closest to creating a character from scratch. Like, I can't think of an identifiable actor that he's trying to parallel. And Mick's absolutely right. We were still in this period where our action stars were not these buffed-up monsters, although, to be fair, Conan the Barbarian did come out this very summer. So Schwarzenegger was about to explode, figuratively. Yeah, great point. Harrison Ford did have Blade Runner this summer, so he was also starting to venture into more more genre stuff. For the record, everybody, let's, let's look at the summer of 1982. Blade Runner, The Thing, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, E.T., Conan the Barbarian. It's fucking insane. Like, this is one of the great summers of First all time. Blood. And, yeah, Rambo. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, I think Kurt Russell's absolutely great in this, but find me a movie where I don't like Kurt Russell, and I will say you are lying to me. I even said I liked him in Fast. You did. 
eight and nine, and he's probably one of the only things I like. He was movie. he was barely he was in that movie for about five seconds too. Yeah, he was in nine for a cameo yeah. and doesn't show up for the rest. Yeah, yeah I, I agree, and a lot of that goodwill does come from this performance. I just love him as McGreedy here. The weird thing is, I used to work in genealogy, so obviously anytime I'm presented with a uh, unusual Scottish Irish sounding surname, I have to go check out what its meaning is in Gaelic and see if it's a real surname wow. and if it exists and how many people without surname are there. So, um, yeah, MacReady, it's from the Gaelic MacReada, uh, which means basically a uh, son of preparedness. So it does actually literally mean ready. Wow. So I don't know if that was deliberate because it's the character's name in the original uh, John W. Campbell story. Oh. But if it's a coincidence, it's a hell of a good yeah, one. Yeah, it is. So we're seeing some ping pong being played. And then there's a gunfight between these guys and some Norwegians. Something explodes, so the guys put out the fire, and we're hearing theories that the reason they were nuts was probably cabin fever. And this is when we get a good look at our crew. First, grumpy Wilford Brimley as Blair. Apparently this guy really was grumpy on the set and even rebelled against a lot of Rob Bottin's effects, which we'll talk about here in a bit. And over the years afterwards, he felt this movie was way too violent, did not like this movie at all. Interesting fact, Carpenter initially wanted his buddy Donald Pleasance to be in this, but he turned it down. Brimley's just, he's just so grumpy in this movie. And I, I, I found it funny that the more behind the scenes I watched, and I did, I did see the, I did listen to the commentary as well. Very entertaining commentary. I recommend people check that out. He was not into this at all. He, he thought this was just going against every single one of his standards. But he comes out, I think that works for his character, though. How do you guys feel about Wilford Brimley in this? Yeah, no, he's great. He's a sort of surly, pissed off, grouchy old man. Yeah. With a sort of a, you know, a unhappy walrus quality to him. <laughs> unhappy walrus, that's a great way of putting it. I can't quite call him a walrus because it's like the only time I have never seen him without a mustache. Oh, that's true. We also meet T.K. Carter as Nalls as he roller skates through the facility. I like this character as well. And then we meet Childs, played by a debuting Keith David. This crew is electric and never boring. I like them all. And Mick, you made a great point at the beginning of this. A lot of that probably has to do with Bill Lancaster's writing, correct? Yes, yes. There's one thing that struck me again having watched this, right after having watched the 1951 film, mm -hmm. is the captain seems to think he's a character in a Howard Hawks film. What do you mean? Well, in that, you know, we've got um, Knowles makes his comment about the captain finally getting to use his pop gun. And, yeah, why is he carrying a shoulder holster? And, uh, you know, it's like Cold 45 when you're in Antarctica. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just kind of got that. And, you know, when he's shooting at the Norwegian, he does the classic old movie thing of poking out the panes of glass with the barrel of the gun and then firing uh -huh. like people did in old movies. And sort of my whole read on this was, was this a guy who was maybe in Korea but never saw any action and desperately wants to prove that he can be this macho, in-charge kind of guy even though he clearly doesn't have those qualities? I like the crew a lot because this is a movie that there's, there's a lot of subtext you can read into, I would say. It's impossible to deny that this movie is a commentary on masculinity because all these guys have different personalities. I think it's important that we see that even though before the alien actually shows up, you can tell these guys are sick of each other. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been enough time, you're trapped, you see these people every day, everybody's got a job to do, but everybody has their own text. Like one guy smokes pot in another guy's face, one guy, you know, on the roller skates, one guy takes care of dogs, so they all have different types but I read somewhere where somebody claimed that the thing is supposed to represent women and how it threatens a society that's entirely male-dominated. 
I, I think that's, a, that's an interesting read. It's also important to note that this movie highlights what we know most about being guys. When there are no women around, what do we do? We drink, we eat, we gamble, and we watch sports. Like, it, it's not that far off of the stretch, if you ask me. There are so many reads that you guys are finding that I did not when I was watching this. That is, that is another interesting read. And I can go with that. I can definitely go with that. I do see this as being, you know, Adrian Barbeau is the one woman, I guess you can mention, in the beginning of this movie. You know, she, she's a voice, and she's yelled at. She's called a cheating bitch at the beginning of this movie. I think this is, I think yeah. this is a very nice read on masculinity and the way guys were thinking about women back in the 80s. So that's a very nice read. It's also, I take it you've both seen Carpenter's first film, Dark Star? Yes, because that's also kind of, what happens when you leave guys alone? Absolutely. And, and um, Carpenter's work is like that. I mean, there aren't too many of his works. When people mention that they're fans, very rarely is it a woman who's a huge fan of Carpenter. You know, Carpenter has a real appeal. That's what I mentioned at the beginning of this movie, at the beginning of this podcast, where I watched this a lot when I was younger, and I watched it with guys all the time. This is not a movie you can just pop on with your female companion and say, let's watch this, honey. Like, it's just not that kind of movie. Yeah. No, He's no. also had a very... Uh, the Laurie Strode is the strongest female character in his movies by far, but I, I would not call him a feminist filmmaker. In fact, I think he can kind of be the opposite. Look at the way uh, What's-Her-Name gets treated in Vampires. Oh, oh God, yeah. yeah. Oh, jeez. Well, it's borderline... Oh, what the fuck's her name? Cheryl Lee, yeah. the prostitute. Cheryl Lee. Um, yeah, that, um, that, was, that was the point at which my date walked out of that movie. Oh, really? Vampires is a very bad date movie. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. For for anyone planning to travel back to 1998 or whatever, um, don't take don't take anyone to see vampires. It's it's terrible and also you know will cause offense. I wouldn't even say borderline. It is it is offensive how he how he treats his women in that movie. So I would never call him a, a feminist filmmaker, but I think that works to his advantage because this is a movie that's all about general distrust and the idea of masculinity. It's there even until the very last scene of the movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely get there. And going off on that, what movie would he make two movies after this? He made Starman, which was another movie about an alien that came from outer space, but it's more of a romantic movie. It's a, it, and so I, I think he was trying to offset the you're saying, Matt. And he did take a lot of what these critics said. And he has said this over the years, that he takes a lot of what critics say to heart. And this was one, he still says to this day that this is the favorite mo his favorite movie that he's ever done. And that, you know, when it took the drubbing from critics that it did, he really took it harsh. And I do think he was trying to redeem himself after that. Did the Paycheck movie and Christine. Then he got the Starman movie, which I think is very underrated. I actually highly enjoy that movie. I just rewatched it just a earlier this year. And it's, it's fucking fantastic. I love that movie to death. It's one of those things where he was trying to atone for the stuff he was doing in this, I think, with that movie. It's weird, though. This film put his career off track a little yeah. bit. Cause he's, uh, but on the other hand, he sort of stretched himself. Would he have made a film? Would he have tried to make a film like Starman if he hadn't had this failure? You know, would he, would he have tried to do a film that was kind of more in a sort of, well, I don't want to say Spielberg, because that's the obvious comparison for Starman, but something that's more obviously sort of humanistic yeah. uh, and sort of warm. And that actually has a stronger female character than his films normally have. Mm -hmm. So we find out that the Norwegian crew started off as 10, and now there's eight of them. They decide to go explore what could have happened. I love how in the midst of all this, Carpenter's panning down to get a shot of the dog laying down underneath the table. He's pretty much trying to tell us to keep an eye on this thing. Yes. And we, we have one of the great needle drops. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just, we have, yeah. Go ahead. And... Uh, 
This is another argument for not watching it on TV because I swear I've seen a TV movie version where they substitute that music for something else. What did they substitute it for? I know I can't even remember. It was like generic, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, you know uh, that Stevie Wonder track, yeah, Superstitious. Yeah. I yes, mean... which is just a. You know, if you're going to be stuck on that bass for any length of time, Stevie Wonder's 70s output would be a great chunk of music to take with you. <laughs> you yeah, know, that, um, and that music makes this scene because this is a movie that is so goddamn borderline nihilistic. This is the one time in the movie where everybody's having fun, and you're saying yes. that the version that you watched did not have this song in it. Now, this could this could just be my personal Mandela effect. This might not have happened. I could be misremembering this, but I I recall the second time I saw it on TV, looking forward to this needle drop happening and it not being there. It's the one time that they're actually having fun. Like they're, oh. There's guys playing cards and all, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think it's necessary, but this is also one of the movies, if I was teaching screenwriting about characterization, this and Aliens, I think, are the prime example of how to clearly define your characters without giving a whole lot of exposition as to their backstories. You get a sense of who all these people are, even though you're just meeting them for the first time. And I think that's, that's not a skill a lot of directors possess. And, of course, he can't keep it happy too long because in the midst of all this superstition or whatever the hell song that Mick heard, (laughs) in the midst of of all this, we're seeing this dog move on through the facility and Carpenter's cutting to black. So there's something brewing here. We're now at the Norwegian facility as the crew explore it for a bit and they find a body and a portable video unit. One thing I'm loving here is the sense of claustrophobia I'm feeling. Carpenter and Dean Cundy, his DP, and Dean Cundy would go on to do Jurassic Park and he'd do a lot of big movies after this. It's so funny how he went from, you know, this indie underground guy who worked with John Carpenter all the time. Then he goes to work with Spielberg. He works with Zemeckis a lot. Yes. And then the highlight of his career was doing Jack and Jill. Oh, <laughs> that's a highlight, huh? Yeah, and you know what? And I think Spielberg did do E.T., but I think he saw this, and I think he saw something in Cundy after this. You know, I think he saw what he was doing with this, and he wanted to take him as well. One great little thing that kind of happens in this sort of chunk of the film, just from a screenwriting point of view, the way this film uses dialogue is so clever, and there's a little thing that happens with McCready, mm-hmm. uh, I think just twice in the film, but it's, you know, when... He's been told to take the chopper up and they're going to go investigate the Norwegian base. And he's explaining the risks, yes. Mm-hmm. That there could be a whiteout, you know, the, all of that. And he has that line where it's, you really want to save those crazy Swedes. And he gets corrected by Copper who says, Norwegians, Mac. And it happens again. And it, it's lovely because McCready's smart, but he's not invested enough in people to be bothered differentiating between Scandinavian nationalities. It's like, uh, they're not Americans. They're the other base. You know, yeah. it happens again when they're at the base. He gets, yeah, Swedes. You know, and it's it's a lovely thing as well. And it's a, um, you know, the way everyone has one little linguistic thing mm-hmm. where the cogs in their brain don't properly intersect and they keep making the same mistake. You know, it's like I'd say, um, my, my one is I, I, I always forget. There's a very famous lawyer, uh, English lawyer, and She's called Gareth Pierce, which is weird because it's a guy's name. Uh-huh. Yeah. But for years, every time the actor Guy Pierce appeared in something, I'd call him Gareth Pierce. <laughs> and it would have to be corrected. And, you know, somebody would go, no, no, no. Gareth Pierce is the famous, you know, English barrister. Guy Pierce is the Australian actor. I'd go, like, yeah, yeah. And then I'd make the same mistake again the next day in conversation. <laughs> and it's, it's that, it's that, it's that one thing. It's a sort of, 
you know, it's the tick he keeps getting wrong and you can't correct him on. And I love that. It's, and and yeah. you know what? If you, and if it was somebody other than Russell delivering a line like that, where he's pretty much displaying a ton of ignorance over what these people are, you would not like him. Like if Nick Nolte was uttering this, there was no way you would like him. You know, the fact that it's Kurt Russell means that we like him. You know, and that, and that was yeah. a genius in, um, in casting Russell in this role. If it was Nick Nolte, you also wouldn't be able to hear what the fuck he was saying. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah. According to the Wikipedia page, they were also discussing Christopher Walken from McCready. Really? Yeah, and I'm like, how would that. Christopher Walken sound not being able to differentiate between Norwegians and Swedes? <laughs> That's yeah. Cool. Also, his, his the movie would be about twenty minutes longer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that blood test sequence would take forty five minutes before he even tested somebody. <laughs> yeah. Fuck you too. <laughs> so they, they uncover what they found, and it is a body that is just a magnificent work of art as far as makeup effects go. More on these here in a little bit. So the dog is hovering around Windows, who's another one of these characters. He's named because of his glasses. He has zero success getting a hold of anyone. Of course, he would have to be on the radio for this to happen, and he doesn't seem to be in much of a hurry to do so. <laughs> I like this character, too. So while doing an autopsy on the body, Blair tells us that the organs within it are completely normal. They take the dog to the cage, and it doesn't take long after Richard Mazar leaves that we get one of the most memorable things of this movie, the way the dog is exposed as the thing. God, I love these makeup effects. I love the sound effects going on. I love everything about this. Carpenter really, he took deep pains to light the film so that each and every effect is in plain sight, which I think is something that the critics really did not like. And he's done such a good job with displaying these effects. Apparently, Rob Bottin, who was a magnificent makeup effects artist, still alive, but at this point he was 22 years old, was so overworked that he was to the point of exhaustion. He called his mentor, Stan Winston, to come help him. And Stan Winston's actually the one who did a lot of this dog transformation. But my God, this transformation is fucking fantastic. At this point, we've gotten into this, you know, we've gotten into the movie. It's about 20, 25 minutes in. Haven't really had much happen, even though I am getting invested in the characters. Here, this is such glorious effects. Also, I, I love how well judged it is. You know, uh, you know the run up to it, even just to sort of McCready going to the fridge to get himself something. Uh huh. And he hears the dogs barking, and he immediately pulls the fire along. Yeah. Like he knows, he knows something bad has happened. It's it's just a great little detail. It's again talking about the, we're not really told these characters' backstories, right? But if McCready is kind of what, I guess he's in his 30s, it's 1982, and he's a helicopter pilot. So there's better than even odds that this person in the real world would have been maybe in the tail end of the Vietnam War mm. or something like that. Some yeah. kind of previous occupation where he's kind of attuned to the, you know, the little things being off that tells you that something bad is now just about to happen. It's, it's that there's a very good sense of that, and we're never told how he got to be here. That's a great point. But we don't, we don't need to, and it's, it's great, and it's, I think it's because he's believable, and you know, all of the character responses to this are believable, that we're A, buying the big, ridiculous, you know, a glorious, scary monster, but also, we don't blink when Childs is told to go and get the flamethrower. We just accept that the scientific research base 
would have a flamethrower. <laughs> There's no reason for them to have a flamethrower. There's no reason for this place to have a flamethrower yet. You don't need a flamethrower. But, I mean, I've seen a Reddit thread on this. <laughs> That's a great um, Where people discussing how there's really no explanation for it. <laughs> But it's great. It's great. You know, we just completely buy it because all the other fundamentals are in place. Yeah. That was one thing I, when I first saw clips of this movie, it was on that terror in the aisles. That was one thing that stuck out to me was the way Russell gets up and pulls that fire alarm. You know, this was the clip they played on that in that movie, and it's the one that really made me want to see this movie. Yeah, that's a great point. Why is he so panicked? Why does he know right away that something's wrong? I, li I like the fact that nobody questions his authority. It's just going at the flame door. <laughs> and the effects? How are you liking the effects? Oh, this is some of the best animal acting you will ever see with the with the dog that's the oh, actual yeah. thing. How it it walks in, kind of gives the all the other ones the, the glare. It just sits down in the center of the pen. Yeah, and the way the all the other dogs react. Not since John Wick have I seen, and uh, I am Legend, where the dog acted circles around Will Smith's overrated ass. <laughs> have I seen such wonderful canine performing? One thing that's never clear to me exactly: how do you become contaminated? Do they ever? go into that i know i didn't read any of the books or anything i played a video game based on this movie uh, years ago. Uh, well, i was gonna say we could talk about the video game at the end of this yeah but... yeah i mean but i i never in all the things i've seen of this i never actually hear how you become contaminated and carpenter did say years after that at this point and mick i know you remember this aids was a pretty big thing it was starting to become a pretty big thing in the early early to mid 80s and I do think Carpenter was playing with the whole idea. You don't know who is sick, who has it, who doesn't. I don't. I don't know. I mean, it's one of these things where it's you know after the fact. It's um, I guess a similar thing here is Toby Hooper after the fact talking about how Texas Chainsaw is all about ma'am. Because you know when you're looking at something from the rearview mirror, it's easy to agree with all of the flattering things that maybe um, highbrow critics might have started saying about your film. And I'm, I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm thinking about this because this was a um, they'd be making this in 1981, right? Yeah, around there. Just yeah. as, just as this was starting to become a new story, right? Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, I guess it it could have been. It's sort of very intentional to do that, but it, it's certainly not something where it doesn't feel as intentional as something like say. The sort of very clear sort of um, AIDS uh, and blood references in something like Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, uh -huh. you know, where you've had a decade to sit with this crisis and ponder what it means. Yeah, it's an interesting reading. I'm not I'm not sure how well it holds up, but if Carpenter says it was intentional, I um, it would be impolite to disagree with him. <laughs> this is where I'll talk about a read on the movie that I had on this most recent one is that. Comparing it to E.T., it's unavoidable. E.T. was a movie that provided Americans, you know, it was very upbeat, very positive. Alien was here to help. When you look at The Thing and what we were coming off of in the 70s, it was all about distrusting authority and especially distrusting the American leadership. You know, we were coming off of Watergate and Vietnam. It was all about rejecting authority. And it was all about, are we misplacing our trust in our superiors? And even our own fellow people, because... Part of that, I think, is also a holdover from the thing from another world with, with the communist angle. And, you know, we were right into Reagan. There was a big shift. The thing, you know, this movie talks about stuff. I think there's definitely seeds of corruption. And I'm glad that Carpenter doesn't, he pushes it without 
jamming it down your throat. The main guy is all about stopping corruption by an alien being. He's almost Reagan saying, I am putting I am putting an end to Carter's bullshit and Nixon's corruption. I am going to go ahead and beat the shit out of every fucking alien I see. Sorry, I, I'm running on two hours of sleep, everybody. Uh, we're recording yeah, this no, no, two no. hours after to keep it dead. So the impressions are going to start coming at full force. But I definitely think the idea of misplaced authority and the paranoia of, of not knowing your fellow man's intentions. I think those are absolutely here. I think the sort of thing with this is, if you've got any kind of subtext or horror film, it's a bad idea to just literally come out and, you know, announce what it is. I think these kind of words are always more effective if they're open to interpretations. And I like the fact that this film is rich enough to prompt those, right? We can think about other films in which there are manly men getting terrorized by a, you know, a monster, right? Uh-huh. Like we could be talking about Predator, which is a lot of fun, but I don't think it's open to the same kind of sort of thematic no. readings as this. No. Oh, God, no. You know, <laughs> no. I mean, Predator's just an action movie with a monster in it. It is awesome on those terms. But with this, there's definitely stuff going on. Any number of interpretations are valid. Just the look and sound of this thing as it raises its head and screams as it raises a claw right before getting out of its cage. Like, this is just, god damn, the effects in 1982. I think this ages beautifully. Yeah, I have no... There's never a moment in this movie where I'm questioning janky effects or I'm aware that I'm looking at something that maybe looks a little bit off. Everyone compares this. This and the fly are the will always be the hallmarks of a remakes and b practical effects. And I think in both of those cases, there's never a moment where I'm taken out of the movie because there's an effect that I think that's lanky. And part of that is because Carpenter really breaks out every trick in the book when it comes to effects. There's matte paintings in certain mm-hmm. shots of the movie. There is some stop motion. There's some actual creature design. There's puppetry. And there's just actual special effects where you're creating something completely from scratch. So I think the fact that there's enough variety with what Carpenter's playing with prevents you from noticing that certain things might not date properly. And I will say, for the record, go buy the Shout Factory Blu-ray of this movie. Yes. It's one of the best restorations that they've ever done. It's amazing. Also, whatever this thing that emerges from its mouth like a flower before Charles takes a flame, throw her to it. Let's just say this is a much cooler reveal than Carrots last week. Yeah. Know? Yeah, and this is fucking uh, Resident Evil stole this verbatim. With, oh, yes. With the, with the zombie dogs. Uh-huh. Resident Evil. Oh, yeah. It's five. Like, it's literally that same effect where the mouth opens up like a flower and the parasite comes mm-hmm. out. So Blair tells us what they have is an organism that imitates other life forms perfectly. He then interrogates Clark, asking him if he's seen anything strange about the dog, and then asking how long he was alone with the canine. Here's the other thing as well, because, you know, this is a film about man, yeah? Uh-huh. And at no point does Blair say to Clark, look, I'm really sorry we had to kill all the dogs. I know you love the dogs. There's no attempt to try and provide kind of any understanding or emotional support there, yeah? Well, there's no warmth. No, there's, there's no warmth. Of course not. It's fucking Antarctica. Yeah. Well, that that was my point. Was it's literally and figuratively. There's no warmth in this movie at all. You're absolutely right. They just had to slaughter his fucking dogs, and Blair's not even concerned about that. He's like, "How long were you with that dog?" You know. Yeah. There's not even a man. I'm so sorry. Yeah. You know. There's not even a clunky guys trying to emotionally connect with each other because nope. they understand this is a bad thing for Clark. No, there's none of that. It's just kind of, were you with the dog? How yeah. long? You know. It's just. God, you know. Mm. 
terrible bedside manner. Meanwhile, the rest of the crew, they're watching the tape of the crew before them left, which shows them blowing up the ice. They go to where the ship is located, and they come to the conclusion they had been there about 100,000 years at the very least, meaning it crawled out and froze. As Child says, he doesn't believe any of this voodoo bullshit. <laughs> I love Keith David in this. You know, Matt, you and I, for some reason, he seems to come up with every single one of our retrospectives, Keith David. Keith David is one of those guys. I just fucking love him. Uh, part of it's the voice. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. He's one of the greatest voices in cinema history. I really hope we talk. If we ever do a Shane Black retrospective, I really want to talk about the nice guys. I want to talk about... I'd love to talk about Dead President someday, if we could ever work that in. Or Pitch Black. He's in the, he's in that series as well. That's right. He's in Pitch... Yeah, he's in that, and he's in Chronicles of Riddick. So uh, there will be other ways we can continue to crowbar Keith David into the show. If we ever do a Disney retrospective, we can do that. I would love to do a one for They Live for the Patreon, actually. Blair is just seeming ominous, and we get, let's call it out, the alien exposition scene. The scene of Blair asking the computer how long it would take to take over the planet. Computer saying 27,000 hours. This is a scene that Carpenter doesn't really like. He loves this movie, but he says on the commentary that there were other ways they could have explained what was going on here. Yeah, this is the whole Ash talking to the computer scene, isn't it, boys? Well, I actually don't have a problem with this. I know I know some people complained about they so does Blair just simply sit down and code this program so he can make these calculations? Is yes. Yeah. But the more I think about this, um, you know, in a lot of the scientific disciplines, knowing how to do your own coding is as important uh, right now as it was in the nineteenth century for all scientists to know how to draw. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know what? I, I don't have a problem with this guy knowing enough machine language to just write a basic calculator that will tell him what the exponential spread for this would be like. I don't have an issue with that. I actually think this is less clunky than a um, McCready later on making his tape recording. You know, you like, which, you like this more which, than that. Well, I mean, I think they're both they're both exposition. I've less of a problem with this, but also, Key and I. I do kind of love old computer graphics. Yeah, I was expecting him to start playing Organ Trail as this as this was going on. Yeah, you have died of dysentery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned Alien, but I feel about the effects in this movie, to quote Ash, when he's like, I admire its purity. That's sort of how I feel about the effects of this movie. Like, I appreciate they went to the full, you know, effects that they, no pun intended, that they did. Mm-hmm. So Fuchs stops... McGreedy and shows him Blair's notes, and we see that his motivations might be indifferent. Okay, we need to talk about this whole sequence where he goes. Well, yeah, McGreedy and Fuchs talking in the like in in the vehicle outside. Yes. Uh huh. And there's a couple of things happen here. The score starts quoting. Um, there's a piece of classical music, the Guyan Ballet Suite, which you might know from Kubrick's 2001. Can you see where I'm going with all of this? I do. And it's very, very likely the music at this point is a um, basically indistinguishable from the Guy and Ballet Suite, uh, which again is used in 2001 in that bit when Bowman is jogging around the sort of spherical interior of the of the craft, and it's sort of also the basis of the overture for Aliens. Yeah. Ah, yes. But basically, the scene with Fuchs and McCready, especially the way it's staged with them in the vehicle, and we've got that weird shot, which might be a, a sort of a um, just another angle, or it might be them being watched, yeah? Uh-huh. But it's very, 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 very similar to Bowman and Poole in 2001 having their conversation in the in the pod huh. about what they think's happening with Hal. It's really similar. Like, if you, if you go back and look at 2001 and look at this sequence, 
you know, they're, they're, they're similar conceptually, but also how, in terms of how they're staged and shot. And again, the music choice. I, I, weirdly, I haven't seen anyone discuss this, but it seems really obvious to me that this must have been an influence. We're going to be talking about Kubrick here pretty soon on this show, and that is something I might have to dive into because I never did make a comparison between this and 2001. But you know what? Carpenter might have. That could have been very deliberate. Matt, did you read that much into this? Not with the music choice, but that kind of gives it more of a comparison. I also can't compare it because unlike 2001, this movie doesn't put me in a coma. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to be saved for a future show. Meanwhile, Bennett has turned into the thing, and we get yet another Rob Bottin creation. My God, this guy was fucking good. Like I said, he did suffer from exhaustion working on this project, and he and the visual effects guy, Roy Obergast, they did not get along at all. He was 22 years old, upstart kid in the business, but he really did turn in one of the best makeup effects efforts I've ever seen with this movie. It's a shame he didn't stick around longer. Was he supposed to do Freddy vs. Jason for a bit? And uh, he, was, he was also rumored to be... Uh... Um, working on a film version of, I don't know if you knew, Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill's comic strip, Martial Law. He was yep. going to do that? He was going to, apparently he was the guy who was going to do that, which, you know, if you look at Kevin O'Neill's artwork and a lot of Robert Teen's effects work here in other movies, and there's a similar energy and a similar level of sort of dangerously crazy and transgressive. Huh. And it would have been nice to see him do that, but no, no, he, um, yeah, he's, he's gone. He's what the keys. His last thing was what was it? Jack and Jill was, it was an Adam Sandler film was his last movie, right? Oh, God. Oh. To the cinematographer? No, uh, no, no for, no, no, uh, for uh, Rob Boutine. And was the Mr. Deeds remake. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. Everybody seems to get burnt out on Adam Sandler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not kidding. He is the death bringer. <laughs> That is a fucking shame, man. This guy, with what he started with this movie, him and Rick Baker and all these guys from back then, there's a reason why they are remembered as falling as they are. The effects in this movie, you cannot put a pin on where, where these effects are coming from. You look at these things, and you look at the way they're formed and everything. Like You can't see where they're coming from. Like You can't see exactly the, the strings attached to this. Well, they are all so interesting to look at, each and every one of them. They are such crazy creations. Matt, I don't know if me and you will ever talk about Total Recall in this movie, but there are some great effects in that as well, and he did those. I want to do, oh, man, I want to do, I want to do all the Philip K. Dick movies. Yeah, I've, 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 I've oh, pitched God, it. Yeah. I've pitched yeah. that. And, and we might do those eventually. But he was such an innovator of his time. And the fact that he got burned out in the business the way he did, it's sad to me because this guy had so much to fucking offer Hollywood. God damn, he was so yeah, good. And it's also, the, the effects, it's not just gore for the sake of gore. If you yeah. notice, a lot of the effects he does are increasing the practicality for all artists. Like there's a scene later on where a character's head stretches off. That was done, so he melted plastic. And what happened was... The, the plastic releases paint thinner. Um, so when Carpenter, you know, put the flame underneath it, the whole fucking thing exploded. So it's like, all right, lesson learned. We know not to do that now. But yeah, if you look at his resume, we've, we've talked about a lot of his work, actually, Garrett, because he did all the Robocop movies. That's right. And that's right. Legend? Did, yeah, he, I, I love to do Legend. You know, he did all the, the Tim Curry makeup on that. Mm -hmm. He did all the masks for the first Mission Impossible movie. Oh, that's right. But yeah, he basically had a nervous breakdown and kind of just like went away for a while. So yeah, it's sad. But like him, Rick Baker, Chris Wayless, you know, yeah. guys like that, there's not a whole lot of them around nowadays. Mm -hmm. Their work is so, it's just remembered so fondly. And there's a reason for that. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you horror nerds, you just like going to those makeup effects and makeup effects for the makeup effects and just practicals for practical effects. No, that's not it, man. It's just the artistry that goes behind this. You just can't look away from it. So Blair's going a little crazy from Cabin Fever. 
Blair. McGreedy talks a little sense to him right before Blair tells him to watch Clark closely. McGreedy, meanwhile, he tells the rest of the crew, and they come up with a blood test that combines contaminated blood with uncontaminated blood. But once they go to the lab, they see that the blood has disappeared, and now the cabin fever has caused them to fight it out. Gary grabs a gun, and McGreedy talks him down. And again, this whole aspect of paranoia, this is what I responded to last week. You know, we talked about that a little bit last week, where the paranoia is coming into effect. Uh, And I'm responding to it here. I love the dynamics these guys have, and the way it is challenged by this alien. We see them having fun in the beginning of this movie, uh, at least a little bit of fun. And here, this alien is challenging their dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is. But it's also revealing what these people are like underneath, right? It's the same way I can imagine Night of the Living Dead actually just playing out as a straight drama with no zombies in it. If all of those characters were stuck together in any situation, right? McCready has the curse of both being a a sort of misanthrope who wants to be left alone, but also a person who's really good at taking charge. Gary would like to be a McCready-like figure, but isn't. You know, you've got all of these characters that are flaws. Um, They've all kind... Again, there's a thing with all of them where they seem to be trying to escape the world, Right. It's, I think conflict would arise at any point just if something went wrong with the base. I think you could, I think this is a type, I think these characters are well enough drawn that you could just imagine, you know, what if just the radio went down and the generator was bust? Mm-hmm. How long before these guys turned on each other? It's interesting. And we can tell them all apart. This is a thing they're very easy to differentiate from both those characters, but also um, visually, right? And, you know, as the film goes on and they're getting picked off or assimilated, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the casting, right? We know that Powell is, well, we know that he's a stoner and he's got some crazy ideas and you probably don't want him flying a helicopter, but his outfit's very, very distinct from, say, like Norris, uh-huh. who's a different body type. Yeah. You know, and it's, once these people are missing limbs or have been partly assimilated, we can still see, oh, that was so-and-so. Right. And there's also a really neat thing in the scene where the dog walks into the, the room with the shadow. You, if you notice... That shadow does not bear a strong resemblance to any of the main actors. So Carpenter is also reinforcing, even in almost immediately, that the thing could be anybody. McReady sets the stage, and as Mick said, he takes charge, saying that if this alien imitates them, then it has won, so they're going to find out who is who. McReady starts making a taped diary detailing how nobody trusts anybody and how tired they all are. Mick, you said you don't like this part? Well, no, I don't I don't dislike it, but I mean, you know, I think if you've got a problem with Blair's computer, but don't have a problem with this. I, I think you're being inconsistent. I think they're both fairly obvious pieces of exposition that's been stuck in so that the audience can follow this more closely. Yeah. Also, the thing McCready says about he's going to hide the tape in a safe place. Uh, where? <laughs> and also, you're in Antarctica. The cold is going to strip the ferox off that tape in like about 10 minutes. I visions of a crew find it and go, oh, we've got a tip here in this play and it's going to be white noise. <laughs> so they hear something and just the look of this flare out in the snow. Again, Carpenter and Cundy, they have done such a great job of lighting a movie that mostly takes place in the dark. Much harder than it sounds, folks. Trust me. And Matt, this goes to what you were saying. Just the way the way this thing's lit. It's just, it's magnificent, isn't it? Yeah. It's all in the lighting. It's all in the... Especially when they're outside, the way the, yeah. the flares reflect off the snow, like on a technical level, there's all, there, I don't think there's anything I can knock in this movie. Like, it, I'm not going to say it's John, it's my favorite John Carpenter movie, but if you look at the overall scope of it, it might be his most accomplished from a technical standpoint, considering everything he's working with. And this is also far and away the biggest budget he's ever worked yes. with at this point. At this point, yeah. And this looks so magnificent on that Blu-ray. 
it needs to be seen on the TV with the surround system booming because it's a very nice experience. McReady checks in with Blair, who tells him that Fuchs is not the thing and tries convincing him that he's all better. But McReady's having none of it and closes the door on him. They find Fuchs' body outside, and McReady says that he's going to go back to his shack because when he left earlier in the day, he had turned all his lights off, and they are on now. Very nice reveal. I loved the way Carpenter revealed that. Meanwhile, Nalls is accusing McReady of being one of them, and I love how Carpenter plants this in our heads. Is our upstart star the thing that is killing them? It's not a new concept, but I think it works great here. We trust Russell, but now the finger's being pointed at him. You're the thing... You can't trust him now, can you, Mick? No. Well, it's a complicated wrinkle, right? It's a, tonight this happens. Yeah, I don't think the film should allow it to get too complacent. And I like that it does this. And it also makes the upcoming blood test scene more suspenseful. Yeah, absolutely. Because you need to... It'd be so obvious if Kurt Russell was the thing all along. That'd kind of be a... Um, what's the word? Shyamalan level of twist, if you will. <laughs> and it'd be like, you know, the, the ultimate aha, of course, it's the one guy you never suspect. So I'm glad he doesn't do the obvious. But also, this movie, ironically, doesn't have the, speaking of Blade Runner, this does not have the was Deckard a replicant theory uh-huh. slash fact nowadays. I think even Ridley Scott's confirmed that. Yeah. Who fucking knows? Ridley Scott has released that so, that movie so many goddamn times. It's kind of insane. So hopefully we don't have any like retroactive stuff where Carpenter says, oh, McCree was the thing all along. And for the record, both the video game and the Dark Horse sequel comic actually address that. So I'll, I'll yes. save both of those to the end, not to, not to tease too much. But mm-hmm. I do have things to say about the comic. So they corner McCready, and what I like about how Carpenter plays this is McCready doesn't deny it. And it it still threatens everybody. So he could very well be it. Okay. I know I said the dog is the makeup effects highlight, but what they do with this defibrillator as they use it on Norris, as the body turns into the thing and takes off this dude's arms, fucking brilliant. Oh, yeah. Yeah. uh, I also particularly like the the sort of work sound when the detached head Mm. is kind of pulling itself under the table with its suddenly long tongue. I I, I love that. It's it's extremely convincing. There's a a great, kind of exaggerated, but still tactile quality to the sound work in this movie. Yep. This is the the scene that was instilled into my brain as a 12, 13-year-old when I saw, like, the scariest movie moments on TV. They showed this scene unedited on cable TV. Uh Uh-huh. And as I mentioned at the last show, that was the moment where I almost like broke my legs trying to run to the video store to go rent this fucking thing. Because it's so seamless the way it goes from the, he goes clear, it's another cut, you see the jaws close. It's obvious now that you're an adult, you know that there are prosthetic arms that are designed to come apart when you pull them with friction. But the bone placement and the, the mark of separation doesn't look like a prosthetic. It looks like an actual arm because it's not perfectly, like, symmetrically detached. Uh-huh. There's clearly pieces missing, and there's clearly... I don't know what kind of squibs they used, but the, the the way the blood just shoots out, it doesn't look like an effect. It looks like actual, like, anatomy work went into how much blood would you start losing at that time? Because two seconds later, the guy just fucking passes out. Blair says Kurt Russell's favorite line of the movie. I mean, he, on the commentary, he makes sure to just stop so that he can hear the line, you gotta be fucking kidding, right before they blow it up again. McReady shoots Blair. Didn't see that coming. That came out of nowhere. 
And okay, you guys have been circling it this entire podcast. Let's get to it. So McGreedy says it is now time to draw everyone's blood to see who is a thing. You guys both have things to say about this. Matt, you go ahead and go. What do you think about this blood test? It's brilliant because while McCready is a pilot, it's something that makes logical sense the way he explains it because they've already seen that when it detaches, it's almost like every piece has a mind of its own and that's sort of how he justifies it. And you can't really poke holes in his logic. Of course, the other guy argues because he, D.W. Moffat's character, because he's in charge or wants to be in charge, I should say. My favorite line in the movie is actually in this scene, but it's towards the end. Okay, Okay. so... McCready's plan is really great, yes, but there's one flaw in it. He's doing this inside, yeah? With the flamethrower, yeah. Yeah. Yes, with the flamethrower, it's like, well, yeah, if somebody's a thing, great, you can barbecue them, but, you know, you're an Antarctica, you can't really survive outside. Maybe you should do this in a way that doesn't risk destroying the only shelter you have. But no, it's, 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 it's a... Very astute observation. It's a wonderful scene. And again, the sound design's fantastic. You know, you've got the screeching of the uh, the cord against the, uh, you know, little Petri dish. Yeah. yeah. Those, those little elements, yeah. and it's fantastic. And um, at the end of it, when Donald Moffat loses it... And slight preview for next week. They try redoing this next week, and it does not work. No. Oh, like, this, 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 this is <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And we'll get to that. But I just wanted to tease it because this is one of the most well-known scenes about this movie. And there's a reason for that. It is very suspenseful. It could be McGreedy. We don't know. I love just the way Carpenter builds it up every single time that, that needle touches the other blood. It's so remarkably done. Yeah, and he mentioned him losing his shit. Yeah, that's my favorite lie of this whole movie, where he's like, Lady Johnson's uh-huh. been through a lot, but when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of the winter tied to this fucking couch! Yes! That is a great line. Here's, you know when they were talking about the casting for this, that they had another actor also in mind for that role? Mm-hmm. Richard Mulligan? If you knew Richard, ah. if you knew Richard Mulligan... I'm trying to think maybe his best known movie credit might be him being Custer in Little Big Man. And he's a very similar sort of physical type to Donald Moffat, but would it just have been too funny if it was Richard Mulligan? I can imagine him doing that. I mean, it's funny when Moffat delivers this line because it's his huge release of tension. Would it have been too uh-huh. funny if an actor who's normally just generally funny had said it? I think this movie's perfectly cast, and I think the way this is played, if you had Richard Mulligan here, there's no way this would play off as well as it does if Richard Mulligan was here. Because like you said, it almost turned into parody at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, could could he really then this is a thing? I mean, I suppose he could. Yeah. But, well, I suppose the other thing as well would be audience, right? Because mm-hmm. certainly I think at that point, Richard Mulligan, he'd been in that sitcom soap, right? Yeah. He's a popular uh-huh. character in a popular comedy TV show that I think had only recently finished. I think so, yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, they, maybe they lucked out there um, by not getting him. Maybe the baggage he'd have carried would have been too much. But, yeah, no, it's, it's great. Moffat's so great in this film. Everybody gels so well in this. And, he, again, it's, you know, apart from Kurt Russell, so many people in this film are just that guy. Yeah. You know, and if you check the man, <laughs> you go like, oh, yeah, I've seen this person in so many other films, but this is the one that people remember them specifically being in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if in, in fact, if Richard Mazar turned down a role in E.T. to be in this yeah. because he was more front and center in this. And he has said that that might have been a mistake, but I wanted to be more front and center than than being, you know, one of these characters in E.T. that I mean, who remembers Peter Coyote from that fucking movie? Nobody, you know, and he was also fucking, Bless Peter Coyote's heart. He could have picked anything he wanted because he was like the president of the Screen Actors Guild after this. Very um, good he, Speaking of Stephen King, he is in the It miniseries. Yes, oh, we're wow. going to get to him as well. 
God, we're going to get to everybody in this fucking movie. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So after Gary protests, it ends up being Palmer, who once again gets blasted away with flames. Meanwhile, Gary tests negative. Blair gets out, and apparently he's making a ship of some kind with helicopter parts. McGreedy wants to warm things up so that the thing can't freeze up again. He also says that they're not getting out alive. Yeah, I, I love this bit yeah. as well. You know, when Gary is asking, me too. what can we do? It's just fantastic. It's just a lovely, well-observed character beat. Where McCready's uh-huh. already just accepted that we're not getting out of here, but neither is it. And then Gary's still yeah. trying to think: is no, is, is there a way we can beat this and also not die ourselves? It's sort of perfect. It's it's just, it's just so good. It's funny you mentioned Alien because it seems like with the with the Blair character, they're setting him up to be the Ash, where he's like either a secret spy or uh-huh. you know he's got ulterior motives, which which ultimately he does, but it's in the name of preserving the human race and all those sort of things until he's the final boss of the movie, quote unquote. I wonder if Carpenter had that in his mind, where like I can't have the twist be like he was quote unquote in on it all along or, or what have you. If you notice one thing in this movie is that I think the windows. Not Windows. This is the one the roller skates. Nulls. Nulls. His death scene, I think, is only a deleted scene. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it. Yeah. It's kind of not really present. He just sort of vanishes. Yeah. And the uh, it's one of the things the novelization bigs out a lot because the novelization has mm-hmm. him killing himself so the thing doesn't assimilate him. Yeah, because they all had like cyanide capsules, which also leads into my theory that that's sort of honoring the original, where it's like. This could be a military operation. Mm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They blow up the facility as well as the generator, but Blair's having none of it. He makes his way in and he kills Gary. The thing, meanwhile, makes its way from underground as McGreedy throws a grenade and tells, fuck you, too, and it explodes. Um, One of the only times where they actually give, you know, like an Arnold-type line before this stuff happens. McGreedy makes his way out and runs into Childs. And this ending, this is perhaps the most nihilistic ending I've ever fucking seen. Yeah. (laughs) They're just sitting they're just waiting to die what's that outside of anything Lars von Trier has ever made but they're saying how the heat of the fire isn't going to last very long and there's just no chance no McReady does say why don't we just wait here a while and see what happens they take a swig of scotch J&B and then credits roll on the thing boys what do you guys feel about this ending here yeah no it's it's perfect you here's the thing it's happened at this point in the 80s yes we are three years away from Rambo First Blood Part 2, and yep. four years away from the end of Aliens, and I think those films both have very, um, I kind of the archetypal 80s exciting ending, right? Mm-hmm. Where the bad guy or bad guys are destroyed, and it's triumphant, yeah? And there's, uh-huh. you know, and, and you can glory, and you can revel in that, and you can come out of the cinema going, yeah! You know, um, Sylvester Sloan has relitigated the Vietnam War, and we won, uh, somehow. Um, there's, there's nothing in this here, right? <laughs> There's nothing in this that, um, yeah, it's very out of sympathy with, I guess, how audiences, what, with what audiences would soon be wanting from all of their entertainment. And is that good or bad? No, it, it's great because it's aged really well. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of, that downbeat ending, that's not going to go out of fashion. But I, I think no. this is one of these things where, yeah, the, the audiences, you know, especially so many films from that decade kind of end with just, Yay, it's Triumph, and it's a, um, you know, speaking as some of them from outside the U.S., it's always very, very evident when you're watching something made during the Reagan era. You know, you have that kind of a um, overcompensating jingoism and triumphalism, the kind of, especially in action cinema, that you get at the end of those movies. 
Which never, mm. we won, but it won't cost us always. Yeah, we won! USA! USA! And it's the exact opposite of that. It's downbeat, yeah. and these guys are going to freeze to death. It's weird. I wish I could remember the name of it, but I think around about 1985, there was a uh, there was a news story I remember watching um, on the news that the Soviets had made a big action movie for their own domestic audiences, and there was this news mm-hmm. report, and they showed some clips, and it, it looked pretty much like, you know, a sort of American or European action movie. You know, there were car chases, explosions, but the thing they said that was weird that Western audiences wouldn't understand would be that the heroes all died at the end, and how un-American that was, mm-hmm. and, you know, how you know, this would never translate to the West. Yeah. I'm thinking that's it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the idea that these guys are just going to die is so out of sympathy with what popular cinema in the 80s was. McCready, this is the worst case scenario. Because now, initially you thought, oh, I'm the last man standing, I can die in peace. Now this mother, this motherfucker has to come out of nowhere, have no idea where he's been, so now I have to watch my, be on guard until I either A, freeze to death, or this guy assimilates me. If he's the thing. Yeah. Like, the, the idea of, like, you can't trust anybody lasts all the way until the final shot of the movie. Yep. And that's why it's as nihilistic as it is. Or does McReady die? We'll talk about that here in a bit. But before then, let's give our scores on this movie. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do we give John Carpenter's The Thing? Mix, sir, you go ahead and go. I'm just going to give it a 10. Wow. Not, perfect. Not, perfect score. Uh, there's nothing wrong with this movie. There's not one misbeat no, here No, no. I mean, I think it's a... Um, I don't know if it is the best John Carpenter film, but it's the most John Carpenter film, and I'd say it's the uh, it, it's the most perfectly realized John Carpenter film. Wow, even more so than the, than Halloween. I would say, more so than that. I would say even more so than Halloween, and um, yeah, because for me, it's with him. It's it's this. It's Assault on Precinct Thirteen. It's Halloween. Those would be my top three. Ten out of ten. Yeah. Uh, anything else to say, or that's no? It? I mean, I think it's a. Um, I think we're really lucky that we got this movie. If you consider the kind of things that were being made by Universal in that decade, we had that with that brief window. You know, this is 1982, so it's the same year we had uh, we had Videodrome, yeah, uh-huh. from Cronenberg from Universal. Yeah, and I think a year or two later, Universal's idea of a summer movie is Jaws 3D. <laughs> you know, we're very lucky that there was this brief window of time when they trusted a couple of new genre filmmakers to do something wildly transgressive, and we we got those movies. Because a year or two later, we would not yeah. have those. This this is a touching doesn't happen again. This is definitely a window of horror and science fiction that I do love. That's a very good point. Quick question. At what age would you show uh, Little Mick this? Um, I'm going to wait till he's 12. 12. That's a good age. That's about the time I saw it. Yeah. All right, Matt. What about you, sir? What do you give John Carpenter's The Thing? And I'm not, I'm not going to go as high as Matt. Wow. I, yeah. As much as I want to. I just can't quite go a 10. But I will give this a very strong 9. I've sort of talked about why I love this movie as much as I do, but one of my favorite things is that for all the stuff that we see about this monster's ability to mimic and its appearance and all the different changes, we know next to nothing about this thing itself. Like, what is it? Is its motive? Was it like something that was not supposed to be on that ship? Like it was a prisoner from the other aliens and it crashed and it escaped? I'm glad that the monster is literally faceless and we, we don't know what it is and that makes it scarier. I think this is maybe the best movie that depicts claustrophobia and paranoia in the horror genre. I think Alien's pretty up there. I'd give this a slight edge, actually, but I'm one of the people that like Aliens more than Alien. I think everybody is perfectly cast. You know, the effects are top-notch. Future generations will talk about this movie in the way that people talk about 
even though it's only like 10 years apart, I think this is sort of the exorcist of remakes, like this in the fly, where I don't think there's a lot you can really critique, and it, it stands the test of time. I will give John Carpenter's The Thing a strong nine, although I will say, if I had to, since Mick picked his top three Carpenters, I would go Escape from New York number one, In the Mouth of Madness number two, and I would give this the number three spot. In the Mouth of Madness. Holy shit. There's a fight waiting. Yeah. All right. Well, I am so glad that this movie has gotten a reassessment from people over the years. You know, this movie had come out, was a massive bomb. As we mentioned, completely derailed Carpenter's career. And I am glad, and Carpenter's glad that people have reassessed this and seen it for what it is, which is just an amazing paranoia-based film. As Mick said, this is not one that you take your date to. This is not one you watch with your girlfriend. But this is one that if I'm alone and I have a night off and it's a cold outside, it has to be cold outside for me to put this on. This is the one I put on. I, I, I adore this movie to pieces. Because it's hard to watch movies where everybody dies. You know, it, it's just hard for me to watch that. Like, there's no character that's going to get out. Not even like a, a somber ending where the bad guy gets out. This is a movie where everybody well, maybe not everybody. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But where everybody's dying. <clears throat> and it, it's tough to watch that. You know, what's going to happen to this quote-unquote thing after this movie's over? What happens after the closing credits? Is this thing going to get out? Is this going to happen exactly the way Blair was told by his computer? We don't know any of that. And guess what? We don't care. Because Carpenter has made this about these characters and these characters only. And that's one of the reasons I really like this movie. He makes us spend time with these people. And we like the characters because of it. You know, even the smaller characters as we mentioned, Gary... Fuchs, all these guys, lesser known actors, but no less good. All these guys, Nalls, they all bring something different to this movie, and you cannot take your eyes off this movie. I'm not going to go as high as Mick either. I want to stick with my partner here. I'm going to go nine. It's very, very good. I had a couple note things in my notes where I kind of critiqued a couple things. I hadn't really responded well to Blair going crazy from the cabin fever, but then I started thinking about it. I was like, God, that's exactly what would happen. We had a situation last year. Everybody was in lockdown. Yes. Everybody was going crazy from cabin fever. Yeah. So it, it was more prophetic than even Carpenter knew, I think. Yeah, solid 9 out of 10. If you haven't seen this movie for a while, put this thing back on. Watch it. Because I'm telling you, with the way Kurt Russell plays this movie, with the way Carpenter has shot this movie, with the way Dean Cundy has lit this movie, with the way Rob Bottin has made the effects of this movie, this is just almost the perfect guy horror film. You cannot take your eyes off it. So 9 out of 10 from me. But this was not the end. 20 years later, I was a guy, I was a pretty big gamer at that time. I did have a PS2. I was a big Metal Gear player. I loved a lot of PS2 games. And then I was getting a video game magazine that said there was a video game based on the thing coming out that was endorsed by Carpenter himself. Carpenter himself is a big gamer as well, because at this point he was not making movies. He was more living off the residuals of all those, re all those movies being picked up for remakes. So he had played this game and he had even endorsed it in that magazine, and there was an interview with Carpenter where he talked about how they captured the paranoia and everything in his movie in this video game. Matt, did you play that game? I did not because I, I didn't have a PS2. I was a I was a GameCube kid, so it was, ah. it was an exclusive. Although I think Xbox got ones. Of course, I had the one system that didn't fucking have it. So my my question was: I know it exists. Is it a sequel? Is it reenacting this movie? Like, it, what is it? It's a sequel. It's a sequel. Yep. And here's the thing. 
<laughs> the thing. See, mixed messages to us have gotten in my head because every time I say the thing, I think of mixed messages because he's been he's used it in every um, way yeah. possible in the lead up. Are we doing things today? Are we recording things today? Here's the thing when it comes to this video game. You know, you play the entire thing as different characters and there are big time bosses in this game. It does get pretty repetitive as you play it. It's just like it just keeps going. You're like, okay, how many of these fucking things am I going to have to kill? Like, how long is this going on? The very last scene, I'm going to go ahead and give this away is you get rescued and you look up and the actual rescuer is McReady himself. That is the very last cutscene of this game. And I remember me and my friend, we played it together. We got to that scene. Both of us got up on our couch and cheered. We were so excited to see McReady. Mick, had you played this game? I, I did. I, um, I think it had only been out for a couple of weeks when I, to my surprise, saw a copy of it like in a second-hand shop and thought, gosh, a bargain. Why is this game available cheaply now? Why would some get rid of it so quickly? And and then I bought it and uh, played it and <laughs> it all became It's not clear. fun. It's just it's it, it's yeah. so repetitive. Like it, yeah, it's not there's a, there's a lot of like okay, I don't remember the exact mechanics of it. Your heart rate goes up or something if you're around the thing or there there's some yeah. weird thing where you can't go near certain people. Yeah. It, like, it was it, it was a really really bizarre mechanic to that game. It's got really complicated game mechanics and things in it aren't very satisfying yes. and stuff in it doesn't make sense. Like the fact that the Outpost 31 base is still kind of intact, but also all of the doors have key codes on them now and these the, the strange yes. things oh God. that make it feel like yeah. they had written another game and then modified it to sort of um, be in line with this license. It's terrible. Here's the thing. thing he said again. You know the idea of a video game in which one of the in, in which there may be a alien an alien imposter is the thing mm -hmm. that we're seeing kind of reflected a lot in. Uh, you know, have you played Among Us? No. Right. Because if you talk to kids, like it, it's you know, so many of my uh, my son's conversations with his friends are about this game. Which one of the uh, you know, if, if you if it's a multiplayer game and. Um, when you start a game, one of you will be assigned the role of you're the imposter, you're the alien. And everyone else had to kind of figure it out. And it's very simple, right? The, the, the mechanics of that are, are very simple. And the gameplay is very addictive, yes. And it's very satisfying. And the thing video game doesn't have that. It's very complicated. And I will give them, they do try to sort of match some of the creativity in terms of creature design. You know, they, they try to come up with some interesting alien monsters for you to fight. But the actual gameplay and strategy are boring. It, it, it doesn't function very well as a game. It sounds much better than it is. I remember reading that article with Carpenter endorsing. I'm like, oh, my God, I got to get that game. And I went first day. First yeah. day I went and bought this thing. My house uh, at the time, my house at the time was getting remodeled. So I had to climb a ladder to get to my room with this game in hand to play the damn thing. And, oh, God, it was just – it was frustrating. It's just a frustrating, frustrating game. But I will say that final cutscene of McReady in the helicopter was fully satisfying for me. I was so happy to see him. And is he the thing or is he not? You kind of don't even – think about that it's just he's the helicopter pilot who rescues you and you're home safe and that's a great satisfying scene but that's like the only thing i can really endorse in this in this game it's not very fun but we weren't done with the thing boys no nine years after that game had come out we get a remake a prequel, a sequel. I still don't know what the hell this thing we're going to review next week is. Boys, you guys hear there's something called The Thing coming out in 2011. I was at the theater. I had to review it for the site I was working on at the time. How are you guys feeling about this movie that we're going to get coming up next week? Uh, yeah, Dread. 
Uh, not good, yeah. not not the good kind of red. More the confusing. Oh right, they've they've they've, they've gone back to that well, but also the film has the same title. Yes, I remember it. That entire decade, uh, especially if you're earning a living teaching film, is going into mm-hmm. classrooms and having students tell you they love insert name of canonical classic, and then you realize a minute into the conversation that they're talking about the remake that came out last year. <laughs> and I remember thinking, yeah, this is going to happen a lot with this. I'll, I'll have kids tell me they really love the thing, and I'll go, yeah! <laughs> you mean the thing 2011? <laughs> and I, I was just anticipating that, and the film not being good, and me having these awkward conversations, which I am. Um, didn't really happen, because I don't think anyone went to see it. No, it did not do very well. Matt, what do you remember about the lead-up to this one, sir? I was nervous as all hell, like Nick borderline not excited but i had heard rumblings and we'll talk about his actual involvement quote unquote was i heard ronald d moore was going to write this movie and that got me excited Mm. because i'm a big star trek guy i mean i named my son after Riker for christ's sake so i have to be oh um you know, he was a guy who worked on Next Generation, who worked on Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Battlestar Galactica, very knowledgeable writer. He's doing Outlander now, which is a great show. So I'd heard he was going to be writing this. That got me excited. It was also... What's the nicest way I could put this? I fucking hate... We talked about this with Fast and Furious. Hollywood needs to stop doing titles that are either the exact same one or missing a word. Um, yeah. I was surprised they didn't just call this movie Thing. Yeah. Or things uh, <laughs> to go with like alien aliens. But my yeah. ultimate question was, what the fuck is this? Is it a prequel? Is it a sequel? Mm-hmm. Because they were very coy. Is a remake? They, they were not overly specific in the trailers. And if you look at the poster, it's basically a slightly more rendered version of the Carpenter one, because you can at least see the fucking monster. Um, so I thought it was a fucking remake. Um, but if you asked me if I was excited, I would have told you no. Especially when the release date kept getting punted, which is never a good fucking sign. The release date did keep getting punted, and it's just one of those responses, right? We we talked about it with Nightmare on Elm Street. There's a there's a remake coming out for Nightmare on Elm Street, and there's that feeling of God, just don't fuck it up, please, just don't fuck it up. And then they started saying, well, it's not really a remake; it's a prequel. Well, it's not really a prequel; it's a <laughs> Like they just kept they, they just kept going back on their words and we'll we'll talk about it next week. But I also was not looking forward to this because of the response I had to this particular film. But we're going to all that next week, boys. I appreciate you talking about things with me. We have one more of these to go, or do we? We'll talk about that next week as well. <laughs> At least for now, we'll have one le- one more to go. But until next week, someone in this podcast ain't what he appears to be. Thank you, gentlemen. gentlemen have been through a lot and when you find the time I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch The Binge Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt This is an enemy right here. There are no enemies in science, Professor. Only phenomena to study.
Voice narration done by Adam. This is pure nonsense. You okay? Yeah. Are you? Not yet, I'm not. Edited by Garrett. Well, what do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Clear! Clear! This one comes out 37, no, wait, 27? Yeah, 27, no, 32, 31. God, 31. Dang, I, I, I yeah. swear I, I passed college math. This one comes out 31 years well, it's, it's 30, What's that? Isn't it odd? Who's 31 It's set out as well? Is that like a deliberate reference or just coincidence? <laughs> coincidence. 31 years later, yes. John Carpenter comes out with this remake. Clear! Clear! Um, yeah, this is the whole... Um, uh, God, what was the name of the robot in uh, Alien? Ash. Yeah, this is the whole Ash talking to the computer scene, isn't it, boys? Clear! Clear! But once they go to the lab, they see that the blood has disappeared, and now the cabin fever has caused them to fight it out. Here's the paranoia, boys. Here it is coming full light, isn't it? So, um... um yeah, this, go ahead. this blood... Are we talking about the blood test scene? Not yet, not yet. It, it, was, a, oh. it was teased, but it hasn't happened yet. We're, we're going to get to that here in a little bit. So, God, who I I have Gary grabs a gun, but I don't think that's right. Oh yeah, that is right because he's he's another guy on the crew. Okay, Gary grabs a gun. Clear, clear. There's a great kind of exaggerated but still tactile quality to the sound work in this movie. Yep. There's one thing about the blood test scene that's just in retrospect. Oh, we're getting there. Well, yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. Save save it for the blood test. Save the blood test scene for a little bit. Clear! Clear! And I really wanted to talk about this because this is the scene where if it was Christopher Walken, it would take two and a half goddamn hours for him to finish this. <laughs> but it would be awesome. Uh, it, oh, it would be awesome. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it would be one of those things where it's like, how how serious could you take this if it was actual, like, Walken being Christopher Walken? We're going to draw mm-hmm. a little bit of everybody's blood because we're going to find out who's thing. <laughs> you see, when a man bleeds, there's tissue. But blood from one of you things... We'll obey when it's attacked. And just draw that out. You are just... counting down until we talk about the dead zone, aren't you? You are counting oh, that down. <laughs> oh, but that has, like, the greatest Christopher Walken line in movie history. And again, uh-huh. Shout That's... Factory is putting out the Blu-ray for the dead zone, which is about fucking time. Clear! Clear! You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.